0: everybody to overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that people just don't talk about anymore. Maybe they weren't seen enough when they first came out. Maybe they were big hits, won awards, just don't get mentioned anymore. I'm Matthew
1: Shuckman. And I'm Blend's Mike Reyes. And Matthew, I am so glad that we have today's film. However, I am saddened by the, the circumstances that have inspired us to, to do this episode.
0: Yes, we um, unfortunately here, we always want to talk about this film. as well as as many other films that the great Fred Ward was a part of, but due to his recent past and we felt it was best that we talk about this now because I think it's a film that a lot of people just kind of never saw maybe because it was made for HBO which is Cast a Deadly Spell. And for this, we have our good friend and filmmaker Ted Gagan with us. And now Ted's somebody that Mike and I know from before he was, I mean, he was doing plenty of work but we still knew him from the publicity side of things more so, but you all may know him as the writer-director of films such as We Are Still Here, uh, co-writer and director of Mohawk, which he co-wrote with Grady Hendrix. And of course, he's now in post-production for his new film, Brooklyn 45. Ted, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, and you know, again, it's one of these sad things because you know, Fred kind of passing is, you know, just like it's one of those ones that, you know, every there's so many people who know him, just don't know his name, maybe know him by face, seems seen him in so many things. But he was really a great presence to have in Hollywood. And it's sad that he's gone, but it's great that we get to kind of commemorate him in so many ways with something like this.
2: Absolutely, yeah, no, he was absolutely, he was the type of icon that people wouldn't necessarily recognize right away by name, but, I feel like anytime he was brought up in conversation and somebody didn't know who I was talking about, all I had to do was mention Tremors yeah. or something else. I mean, honestly, it's, it's amazing given the fact that Remo Williams was such a colossal failure, yep. how much people remember it. They, they remember it, and most people remember it quite fondly. Um, so, I do. yeah, I definitely
0: uh... do. I mean, I never said it was a great movie, but I remember finally loving it as a kid. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, no, I, I think his, his presence. <clears throat> far outweighed the uh, the fact that people just never never seem to remember that name.
1: And meanwhile, we remembered him so finally that Matthew, I remember, I think it was like a couple of months ago, we were talking about future episodes. And it's like, look, we, he really wanted to do Remo Williams. It's like, we got to see if we can get Fred Ward on here. Yeah, and yeah. we were sort of in the beginning of the process. And it, it, not many leads came up. And unfortunately, he is now no longer with us. But as we had said, at least we get to commemorate his work, especially with something like Cast a Deadly Spell, which I would have eaten up as a kid if I actually watched this then. Uh, Ted, what was your, well, Ted and Matthew, since I'm already asking here, what were your first uh, introductions to the film?
2: Uh, Matthew, I, you go first, because I'm, I'm really curious what yours is, because <laughs> mine, mine's quite silly.
0: I definitely remember when it came out on HBO, you know, like I was, and look, It's Now it's like beating a dead horse. I always bring up the fact that my father would always introduce me to stuff when I was too young to be introduced to them and so on and so forth. So I was like 11, 10 years old when this came out, 11, 12 years old when this came out. And I already knew H.P. Lovecraft because my father loved, my father still loves anywhere from A grade to Z grade horror films. So we were watching things like Reanimator together when I was like a young kid which would open up a door into watching. It's like, oh, I love Jeffrey Coombs. Like, oh, I got this movie. It's probably a little too racy for you at this point, but we still watch From Beyond, which (laughs) would get me into the notification of kind of H.P. Lovecraft as a writer, uh, You know, from the stories to kind of go from there, which, so when Casa Spell came out, I saw these things on the promo for the character named H.P. Lovecraft. I don't know what's going on. So I immediately sat and watched it. So this is something I saw when it technically came out.
2: That's amazing. It's, It's similar. Um, I, I also saw it when it came out. Um, I would have been 12 or 13 at the time. And I remember just eating it up. Um, I was not that familiar with H.P. Lovecraft at the time. Um, I, I knew what I knew who he was. Yeah. But I wasn't that familiar with his writing. So when I first saw it, I didn't catch all of the the nods to him throughout the entire thing. Um, I mean, the fact that it the end of the film, they're trying to raise up y- Yog Sothoth, which is like one of the famous ancient ones, like right right behind Cthulhu. Yeah. So, and they they even name dropped Cthulhu in the film a couple times. So, but those, those kind of things went a little over my my preteen head, but I remember just just going nuts with it, and also the fact that it was the year after Tremors, and um, so I, I had seen Tremors a year before, I think like three times in the theater. I just loved it. And so when I found out that the star of Tremors was going to be in this <laughs> this weird film, I had I had to see it. Um, yeah. My my parents mercifully let me watch it. Um, and while it it's not overly gory, you know, I, I think it it definitely scared me a little bit. I think the the death by a thousand paper cut sequence in it is is not necessarily that gruesome, but it, it psychologically yeah. really bothered me a lot as a kid. Um, just the idea of it, I. I remember thinking, like, how much one paper cut hurt. Um, and so even though the scene only has a couple drops of blood splattering, I remember being like, oh, that is troubling to me. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I saw it as a kid. I, I loved it. Um, I got really excited when I heard they were making a sequel to it. Um, saw that, what was it, three years later, I think, 94, or 95. Around and, there, yeah. And uh, was was bummed out that fred ward was not playing lovecraft again but was kind of weirdly surprised that it was dennis hopper i felt like i felt like in the 90s wouldn't dennis hopper have been the star of the first one and then he <laughs> wouldn't come back and they'd get fred ward like that's just totally in my head. yeah yeah it's it's amazing I, um so and I, i'm actually a much bigger fan of of Cast a Deadly Spell than, yeah. than Witch Hunt. Um, I think Witch Hunt is, is interesting, but it's, it's definitely, it doesn't have the charm that the original does.
0: We also have to wonder about the idea of what HBO original films meant back in 91 compared to what it may mean now, especially. And yeah. where certain bigger, even though like, look, I know some of it was earlier in their career for people here, but this is a stacked cast.
2: Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's across the board.
0: Yeah, I mean, everywhere from Fred Ward goes Julianne Moore, you know, Clancy Brown, which a lot, another name very similar that, you know, another character actor that everybody, especially younger audiences now know because they're just obsessed with SpongeBob SquarePants. But like, yeah, how many things can you mention Clancy from, you know, and I won't go through the whole list because it's actually kind of insane. Uh, and I think I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Arnetta Walker is the only one who returns for the second one, which is Wish Hunt, right?
2: I, I believe so. I mean, almost everybody gets off, But yeah, I, I, think, yeah. I, I, think she, I think she is the only one who returns. Yeah.
0: I can't not forget to mention David Warner, of course, because Jesus Christ, yeah. David Warner. Still working to this day. Yeah. Love the man. Love the man.
2: Yeah. Last thing I saw him in was uh, the uh, Mary Poppins Returns, and he was like 10,000 years old. He was confined to a chair, and every single time he showed up in the movie, I just lit up like a light bulb. He is... He is a gift to cinema. I, I fell in love with him, I think. I think through Waxworks, um, mm. the, the uh, um, Anthony Hickox film, and was so surprised to see him. You know, with like a major role in in James Cameron's Titanic. You know, and he's just. I mean, he's everywhere. And he's he's one of my faves. He's also he's uh, David Warner is also a big Lovecraftian fan. Um, yeah. obsessed with it. Um, he's a, one of the stars of Necronomicon. Um, the really interesting. Lovecraft inspired film that's never gotten a proper U.S. release.
0: I mean, look, I mean, not to to jump back to it, but since you mentioned it, to me, growing up, I would Time Bandits and My Best Friends of Vampire were on almost every five minutes. Yeah. And it's like, to me, like David Warner at that point was like the biggest star in the world. It's like, this guy's in two of the greatest movies ever made from five year old me or whatever it was.
2: (laughs) Yeah. it's interesting because I didn't see Time Bandit until I was much older. And it's oh, okay. it's interesting that that's, that's a film that a lot of people my age, which which you are, um, you know, they, they remember it as, as a film from their childhood, but I, I definitely didn't see it until I was a later teen. I have no idea why, because it was oh, yeah. right up my alley. But I mean, yeah. like, but like, and
0: again, I'm sorry, Mike, because I know you were about to say something, but just to go back into it again, yeah, my father would raise us on stuff like Monty Python. So when he would start telling me, oh, the guy who made that movie... Well, guess what? You know he was the guy who did the animations, Monty Python. Like I, I was like going to the theater to see Baron Munchausen on release day as a kid because I was obsessed at that point already.
2: Yeah, oh, so good.
1: And then some of us were introduced to David Warner through the cinematic classic Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. That's but, right. He's the guy who makes the ooze. Yes, yeah. that's right. That, even in yeah. that, it's just it was David Warner shows up. David Warner. David Warner call just calls the shot and gets it. And yep. then after that, I was pleasantly to dis- pleasantly discovered him in uh, the Man with Two Brains, and then you know wow. Titanic and Tron and all these other things and, and Freakazoid, the loob. <laughs> it's just the man is so, is so storied, and Fred Ward as well because I found him in Naked Gun thirty three and the third. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and screwed still up. Just-
2: I was gonna say screwing up the Oscars before it was popular.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I- I very vividly remember when the uh, the Moonlight uh, uh, La La Land fiasco happened. The first thing I did is I went to to, um, to Facebook and posted a picture of it's the bomb.
1: Yep, and <laughs> mildew all the way, baby.
0: Cast a deadly spell. I have to say, also, is it's it's just it's such a brilliantly put together work because it is a classic perfect noir with that whole Lovecraftian slash witchcraft, however you want to put it subplot you know just kind of like sewn into it so easily that it's like if people didn't know something like Chinatown existed and then they watched this granted there are certain it's not going to be on a certain level of you know like a shock on a twist value let's say but it's like the story's perfect it's almost it's almost like not carbon copies of each other but they can be considered contemporaries
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the, the fantasy noir or weird noir, whatever we want to call it, subgenre, which has very few titles, um, it, it's very effective. I'd love to see more of it. I mean, I, you, you can very easily lump this film in. It, it's practically a sister film to Who Framed Roger Rabbit as well. I mean, it, it's the type of movie that plays 100% as a straight noir it just happens to have some fantastic element to it, um, and everything beyond that, it's like nobody's winking at the camera. Like this is mm-hmm. this is being played completely straight face. It's being playing straight, bleh, being played for straight drama. It's just. Otherworldly, and I, yeah. I think that surprises a lot of people, especially when you look back at Roger Rabbit, which I revisited recently. And I mean, the thing is just a masterpiece. I mean, it's it's unbelievable because as a kid, we remember Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman, but you watch it now, and I mean, it's it's not that. I mean, the, these are supporting characters in this the Eddie Valiant story. It, it's about a hard-boiled detective it's about alcoholism it's about loss it's about frustration it's about not being able to contain your anger like it's really impressive filmmaking and similarly cast a deadly spell i mean it's it's a classic noir it's 1948 hollywood it's all the things that you think of when you think of of a classic noir film. It just happens to have every single kind of supernatural element in it. Um, I, I think the plot is the plot is very amusing. You know, Cast a Deadly Spell is, is about a detective, uh, Phil Lovecraft. He's never referred to as H.P. Lovecraft in the entire film. Um, he is always Phil Lovecraft, even though he is H.P. Lovecraft. Um, a fictionalized version of the science fiction pioneer and infamous racist, um, who, <coughs> is, uh, who is a uh, hard-boiled detective uh, trying to solve a number of cases and gets caught up in a supernatural conspiracy that involves a rich jerk and a nightclub owner and all sort the 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 dame who steers him wrong and all of the all of the classic noir plots are in this um,
0: very importantly in in that world he's the only one who doesn't use any magic
2: he is he is the non-magic user of the group and he is tempted and it's it's it feels very similar to the sort of movie where it's the, the one guy who doesn't like to carry a gun um it's it's very much that um it's incredibly charming hbo clearly put a lot of money into it in 1991 i'm i was i'm absolutely floored that they financed this film for their cable network in yeah. 1991 i mean they were barely out of the 80s hbo was had been around for a while but i mean it was still a burgeoning network and the fact that they were putting this thing out was incredible um it hit video very shortly after and i'm, I'm sure that uh, most people know it from its video release um but it's uh it's such a charmer i mean there there are so many things i i want to bring up about it that i i just i love i i think it's i think it's incredibly clever um there's there's all of the surface clever stuff you know the the cop that you know he's always butting heads with his name bradbury um you know there's all there's all these little author in jokes here and there yeah. throughout the movie um, I really love the fact that um, it, it does have a queer supporting character, not, not just set in 1948, but from a film from 1991, um, to have a supporting queer character in it, um, unfortunately, he's almost exclusively referred to via slurs, um, yeah. which I, which I, I get they, it was the era, it was 1948, yeah. that sadly is how a lot of people are referred to um, at that time. Um, But it was, it it is kind of refreshing, even though the character is rather stereotypical in some ways. Um, And I wish they had a little more character at the same time. I really appreciate the fact that this, this queer character actually had something to do in the film, like actually had a role in the film that was, had nothing to do with their sexuality. And I, I found that very refreshing, again, not just for a period film, but for a movie made in 1991.
1: It was also really nice that, you know, it's uh, obviously you have the the F slur in there as, you know, if you're writing, obviously it's you're writing a period piece, it's like, oh well, they said it back then. And you know, that only gets you so far these days, but 91 of yeah. still play. But it's never cruelly labeling the character as such. It's just that's Lovecraft's parlance. You could take it as you will, but the character is never written as this sort of joke. It's, no 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 and
2: and I and I deeply appreciate that and the fact that for for all the for all the f words used in it there's plenty of times where Lovecraft is is speaking to this person who he respects and he has worked with previously where he will call him a fairy and things like that but he says it almost in a in a jovial sort of way like he's he's not intending to hurt this character's feelings by Mm -hmm. using these terms it just as we said was was parlance for the time I mean it's uh you know, I, I have not previously mentioned this, but one of the uh, one of the main characters of Brooklyn '45, which is set in 1945, is a is a closeted gay man uh, who hides his sexuality from the military, but all of his best friends know that he's gay. Mm. And what a big deal that is for 1945, and the fact that his friends don't mind this. And um, there are a few slurs there as well, also kind of spoken in a, in a similar way. But you know. Uh, I myself, as as someone who's a member of the LGBTQ community, I, I wanted to be very careful in in how that language was used and to make sure that it was not being, I mean, for lack of a better term, being abused, because I, I don't like throwing those terms around for shock value, but I do think it's important that we're properly conveying the time period. And like I said, it is unfortunate that this character in, in Cast a Deadly Spell is, is almost exclusively referred to by slurs, but... I'm very grateful that this character had such a meaty role.
1: Yeah. So going back to the budget, because I just, I stumbled upon this right before we came out, came on, because Bloody Disgusting ran a piece about the film in tribute to Fred Ward. How much do you think this movie cost?
2: I, I have no idea, because it clearly, they clearly employ, employ a lot of backlots, um, the the cast, none of them probably would have commanded that big of a salary for ninety one. Um, the effects in it are very good. I'd think that plenty of money would have gone to the effects. And honestly, I don't I don't know what budgets were like thirty years ago. So I I I'd, I'd probably make a clown of myself to even guess. I, I'm gonna I I guess low only because it probably is lower than it looks, which would be impressive.
1: It's 6 million. Wow, 6 30, million. 6 million for 37 days of shooting. And wow. you know, this is an HBO movie, but HBO had so much experience with making original films, some of them that they actually sent to theatrical distribution in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And this was like sort of, not only was this the era of the HBO original movie sort of coming into its own, but this is also peak Tales from the Crypt era. So that yeah. might help things out too.
0: Interesting. It's still shocking, though. Like I would, if you would have told me something like fifteen, I would have said, "Yeah, that makes sense."
1: Even here in six sounds man. interesting. Martin Campbell doing the work.
2: Yeah, yeah. Very early Martin Campbell film, and I mean, I mean, he was making Goldeneye four years after this. Like, what, what an incredible lee And then Casino Royale. I mean, dude's one of very few filmmakers to have made two Bond movies. Actually, he's one of two filmmakers to make two Bond movies. Him and Sam Mendes. Um, there's, a, there's plenty of other filmmakers who have made. Four Bond movies, but uh, we won't get into that. Um, but yeah, no Martin Martin Campbell really knew what he was doing. Um, I mean, it, it's shot beautifully. Um, you know, it, it really drinks in everything. It really feels lush. It really it feels like a period film, which I really appreciate. I I like the fact that they employ so many backlots and so many soundstages moments in the film because I I think it does make the film feel more like a film from the era even going as far as like the glass plate titles at the beginning of the film which are absolutely beautiful where they they film them over the silk screen um where everyone's name comes up with a shadow underneath it it's it's really really lovely um it's the sort it's the sort of opening credits that you can imagine being in high contrast black and white before a James Cagney movie
1: oh yeah and uh I was going to say, I had something for this. Damn it. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but what's really funny is uh, just quick side note, Matthew, since you mentioned no escape the other day. Yes. That's like right in between this and, and golden for Martin Campbell. And that was the movie that got him bond. Really? Yeah. He, I, I got to talk to him last year for the protege and he mentioned how no escape apparently got the attention of the producers. And that was how he was offered golden eye And then after that point, they offered him every Brosnan film after. And he's like, I don't just want to do some madman in a control control room wants to take over the world over and over again. So when Royale hit, that was what the the fresh approach was that brought him in there. And
2: then my comment
0: comment was then that maybe what we're going to end up doing now is, because again, you mentioned about Mendes doing the two James Bond films. They were in a row. Maybe it's going to be where Martin Campbell now does the very first movie of all the new Bonds. <laughs> yeah, he did bring the, it, bring right, it. He did the first Brosnan one, did the first Craig one, and whoever takes over, he'll do the first one for that, and then that's good enough for him.
2: Yep. No, he's, he's a gem. Um, and Yeah, he, he certainly kicked all sorts of ass with this one um what are some other things i wanted to mention about the movie i'm just i i love talk movies as you can probably tell um
1: <laughs> i have no I'm, idea what that poster in the background is that looks like a, a cologne ad
2: <laughs> uh this right here um yes. this oh yeah this would this um i unfortunately the folks at home uh apparently can't see this since we're uh we're voices only but uh my my office has uh this is a ghanian uh, uh flower sack uh hand-painted poster for uh, Cannibal Pharaoh, um, which was released in America's Make Them Die Slowly, um, it's a uh, Italian cannibal film, but that's an African flower sack uh, poster from it uh, from the '80s. So you gotta love those those uh,
0: Guyan uh, poster artists; they're insane.
2: Yeah, this is one of the rare ones where they actually just tried to replicate the uh, the original poster art, um, yeah. and they did a did a damn fine job of it. So I uh, it, I treated myself to it years ago when when money was better. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, going, going back to cast spell too, and talking about the budget and where it all went, you know, cause you, we, we talk about the effects and a lot of it is, you know, cause again, a lot of people nowadays who are, you know, younger think they, I, I've, I've watched people react to movies where they're like, they're like 20 something years old at this point, And they're watching something from the eighties and nineties. The and they're constantly just referring to things as CGI, no matter what it is, even though yeah. if it's a practical effect. And it mm-hmm. started to mess with me a little bit. Then now when I watch things, I remember watching this again and like thinking about things like the, uh, the thousand paper cuts where it's obviously, mm-hmm. you know, not wouldn't call it CGI or like that, but it's just it's a clever overlapping of an image that's, that's uh, superimposed in ways. But then you go to the gargoyle when it attacks mm-hmm. them in like the hotel room and you can tell mm-hmm. it's somebody in a suit, but in the same breath, it looks like it technically is just maybe a, robot prop but it's not it's just, the money was very well spent that's all i
2: got to say about it yeah yeah the monsters look awesome i mean everything from there there's a cameo of a wolf man to i mean even the yog sothoth at the end of the film is is a really fun giant kind of mini kaiju-esque monster <laughs> uh, my personal favorites are the uh, the gremlins that are inside the car Yes. Um, and it, it, there's a there's a great little reference. These are not the uh, Mogwai Gremlins uh, from the Gremlin films, but it's a, it's actually a really clever reference um, to what gremlins were gremlins were created in world war ii yep um because you had soldiers whose planes were working just fine and all of a sudden something went wrong just because somebody wasn't doing their job and instead of blaming it on anyone they'd always say that there's gremlins in the plane and that term just carried over when the soldiers came home after the war and the word gremlins just got associated to anytime a car didn't work anytime your toaster broke it was always the gremlins are in there And there was a really cute reference in the film where one of the characters says, you know, the GI didn't bring anything back from the South Pacific except for all these gremlins and I love the idea that they, the gremlins came home with these soldiers and now poor, poor middle America is stuck with this thing that practically came over on the boats with them. Um, It's such a a charming little reference to a little piece of World War II history but at the same time I mean they're cashing in on being able to say the word gremlins without uh, worrying about lawsuit. And the gremlins that they come up with in the movie are absolutely adorable. They've got these little pot bellies and big belly buttons. They're uh, they're really <laughs> really adorable little creatures. They actually were the cover of a Fangoria or a, or a Gorezone or something when this film came out. I remember I remember them very well from that.
1: And they also have a, a similar look, like a little bit of similarity to the Dante gremlins, particularly the ears.
2: They yeah, kind of, they, kind
1: of reminded <laughs> me of them.
2: Yeah, they kind of look like Mogwai. They look like they look like deformed fat mm. Mogwai. Yeah. yeah
1: which just makes them even cuter.
2: Yep, yeah, I was uh, I was a big fan. Yeah, that's a, a, the, the monster the monster effects in it are just top down great. Um I forget what the name of the company is that that designed them, but they're beauties. Um yeah, I mean all the way through and I I mentioned Yog-Sothoth, the uh the giant Lovecraftian beast that David Warner's character is trying to resurrect throughout throughout the film. Um, I'll I'll geek out. I'll do a little Lovecraft geek out for you here, but um, Yogg-Sothoth is a a character created by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, He's one of the Old Ones, which are a species of immortal beings that have been around since time immemorial. Most people are very familiar with Cthulhu through heavy metal and the fact that Cthulhu's name gets thrown around a lot in genre cinema and television, Um, but Yog Sothoth is is another one of the the elder gods. He's actually way bigger than Cthulhu, and it's kind of interesting. So Cthulhu's supposed to be massively huge. I mean, the, the size of you know three or four Empire State buildings. Um, and the, in the stories, they say that Cthulhu is to Yog Sothoth what humans are to Cthulhu. So Yog Sothoth is supposed to be whatever a hundred million times the size of Cthulhu so the fact that he's the size of a kind of a a tour bus in this is is a much smaller version of him yeah but uh but the the design is really fun um and yeah he um he's just a really fun Lovecraft creation he first appeared in 1943 is the case of Charles Dexter Ward which is a really really fun Lovecraft story it's one of my personal favorites um And then he ended up showing up in in several more of Lovecraft stories. Um, A a lot of the Cthulhu mythos stories uh, feature feature Yog Sothoth or reference him.
0: My 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 memory now is is lost on me. Was the case of Charles Dexter Ward what they judge which they based resurrected on, or is it a different story? The one with um with um. No, oh god, I
2: haven't seen that in so long. Yeah, yeah, that's the one that's like set in like Louisiana or yeah, something. Yeah, with Chris Sarandon. Um, I, I remember loving it
0: as a kid. I
1: haven't seen it in oh, so long. Boy, I have, in my I head, haven't I seen think that, in
2: that it was basically I remember trying to find it after. I think it might be actually. Now that now that you're saying that out loud because I I honestly don't think I've seen it since I read all of Lovecraft stuff. So, yeah. I, that would totally be worth a revisit. But yeah, now now that you say that, I think it was, but can't be sure. I I can remember the film vaguely. I like to remember the location, a couple people who were in it, but the the plot is a little yeah. I, I'm the to same right way, now.
0: and I lo- I remember loving that. Remember that being that was one of the ones that was like talk about underrated at the time or never seen. Like that was a really good one, and I have to i have to mm-hmm. find it again.
2: Done and done. I'm watching it this weekend. Yeah,
0: Ooh. I put it on the list. The resurrected. We got to find it.
1: Done, but also circling back to the more practical slash dialogue aspect of this movie. Something that I. I'm always pleased with when it comes to noir at tinged films is the lingo, the dialogue, the character uh, the character of the words that are coming out of people's mouths because it's very easy. I always go back to horrible memories of a great improv group I was with in college, but they had the film noir game and it was always people would do that. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's not what this is always about guys. And it just, it would always bristle me. Mm, and yep. even more so when a movie just, Sinks into that, but this is it. Plays it face value, and especially through through Lovecraft's dialogue, it's Mm -hmm. just solid, solid noir all the way through. And the people, the cast that is in this movie is born for this because Fred Ward is just not in a a detrimental way, but he's a guy that you would call like he has that mug, and it's Mm -hmm. like it's not because we're saying it's a bad thing, but just he's got that face that's like. He's been knocked around a little bit. He'll always be there for more. And... He was born. He was
2: born to play a hard-boiled detective. Yeah. He would have. He would have been a. He would have been a leading man in the nineteen forties. Easy peasy.
0: Just that that um, that curl coming out from under the hat. It's just it's just too yep. good. It's too good.
1: And then of course Julianne Moore and Clancy Brown sort of forming a great trinity of other people that just totally buy into this atmosphere, and. Uh, Again, it's just, you know, knowing Clancy Brown from Shawshank or Highlander or throw a hat, throw a mm-hmm. name in the hat and you'd know him. It's just wonderful to see him with like the mustache and the calm, cool demeanor, sort of like a David Chouderon yeah. from L.A. Confidential.
2: Yeah, it's it's very interesting because when you when you watch the film, it's, it's almost surprising when he first appears in the nightclub, when you see him kind of step down and walk into frame and you're like, oh, my God, it's it's a svelte, mustachioed Clancy Brown. And it almost feels like when you first see him, you're like, wow, I I never would have pictured him in this role. And as soon as he opens his mouth, you're like, I can't picture anyone else in this role. Mm -hmm. Like he he completely dominates it. He's so much fun in it. And yeah, he just... He just nails it. he he's great in it I, I really I really love him and it was it was a pleasure re-watching the film i I'd, I'd seen it a few years ago, but I, I watched it a couple of days ago in preparation to chat with you guys and and he was one of the people who definitely caught me off guard with just just how charming and just how lived in his character feels. um I mean really all four of our leads, like Ward Warner Moore and Brown, like all of them really their, their roles all feel super lived in like nobody feels like They're just stepping into this this universe.
0: Yeah, because going back to everything that we said earlier, you know, again, for being something that is dealing with supernatural magic, however you want to put it, uh, and for something that is lower budget in a lot of ways, HBO films at the time, you know, they just treated everything with such a, a appreciative brilliance that from probably the person grabbing the coffee the, the, the you know the production uh, assistant grabbing the coffee to write up to the director and the producers everybody just cared about this
2: 100%. I mean I again you look at look at Bob Hoskins in in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean that is a that is an oscar worthy performance. He is phenomenally good in that film and throughout all he is doing is playing that Without a laugh, without a wink, with nothing. I mean, the character is very intentionally hilarious, but it's because of how perfectly it's portrayed. I mean, you could take that character, whip him out of that film and throw him into any double indemnity sort of movie, and you would not have to change a single thing. And similarly, I mean, Fred Ward's Phil Lovecraft feels the same way. You could you could pop him out of this supernatural silliness and put him into any straight faced noir, and you wouldn't have to tweak a single thing.
1: Roger Rabbit, just quick note on that that editing room scene is the one like that is one of my favorite moments where it just shows Bob Hoskins' intensity in it, the movie's intensity. It's just. That's the one moment where it's like, if you really thought this was just going to be a family movie, good, good luck. And <laughs> I, again, my parents bought me the VHS, let me watch it. And I watched it yeah. so many times. And just, I think that is where my film Noir Love began because oh, of that. Completely.
0: And talking about, again, we're talking about the stat cast and Martin Campbell and this other stuff. And I mentioned to, up to the producers, also another, this is a film produced by Gayle Ann Hurd who you know yeah. became a yes. lot more well known to the general public in maybe the last more decade or so but like the the number of movies just that she has had that. her hands on or just productions is just insane absolutely insane
2: yeah and yeah. i mean she she's instrumental to genre film and television 100% yeah. yeah i also oh go ahead mike sorry
1: no 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 i'm i'm just grinning like an idiot because this was my first time watching this and it felt like something that I had it felt like something I was just at home with 100%, and now (laughs) I really want them to do a Blu-ray and or or do some sort of thing with this property. I'll even watch Witch Hunt because I think it's available in the ether of online.
2: I believe Uh, both. I I think both. I think both Cast a Deadly Spell and Witch Hunter on HBO Max. I know Cast a Deadly Spell is. Yeah, Cast a Deadly Spell definitely.
1: Which this is
2: wonderfully to HD. I believe Witch Hunt is so. I
0: don't see why not. And what's also interesting too, Is they bought back Joseph do- Doherty to do the script for Witch Hunt as well. I don't know if it was his plan the whole time. So you basically have the same writer for both. You have the same idea for both just with completely different cast, except for one returning character uh, in Kropotnik. And it's just, yeah, it's something about it just didn't, didn't work the same, I guess. I, don't, I, don't I know think it
2: It's also pulling it out of the forties and switching it into, I think it, it's, you know, it's a red scare film as yeah. opposed to a, a noir. Um but it, it still has a lot of the charms and, and Hopper's again, really, you know, believing in the role. Um, but yeah, it just, it doesn't, doesn't work for me as much as EOG. I do want to
0: just go off to di- cast a spell for a second, be- you know, before we run out of time too. Uh, because the, my other thing about Fred Ward that I always, I both loved and was a little annoyed about it. It's not about him. I was annoyed about the way people saw him, I guess, is because when I was, let's say 18 to 20, around so in the end of the 1900s to the beginning of the 2000s is when six degrees of kevin bacon became a big thing in my mind and it was before you could just jump on your phone and look on the internet if you didn't know it and so my friends and i actually were very big purveyors of the whole thing we we found it a lot of fun and what annoyed me so much is that there are people still to this day because i came across like a tiktok account of somebody who just like has a friend who thinks he can He's the best at it. And now you say, oh, Bill, somebody said try this and you can't do it. And I'm like, and he did it in like five steps of some random actor. And it's like, these people have obviously never seen the player and they haven't seen JFK because yeah. between those two movies, every single actor in the world has been in both of them. And then since Fred and Kevin are together in Tremors, it makes it so easy. And I just wish people yeah. would pay more attention to these things.
2: Because <laughs> <laughs> like, there's your in. The, the player was, was
0: advertised as 92 Hollywood film stars. And some of that is just red carpet footage of somebody somebody yeah, yeah. hugging somebody else. But it's so easy. And I, I'm just, now I, I don't even remember what my point was. I just wanted to bring it up.
1: Well, the point is <laughs> the that Fred wh- Ward is an easy in for six degrees except Kevin Bacon. Technically, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, always. Always go to Ward.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Just again, what a what a journeyman career that he had where he could just fit into anything always showed up and was just you know it was it was fun to see him there
2: and absolutely I think he's, he was an absolute charmer I always smiled when he popped up in things I always found him a hundred percent enjoyable I felt like he'd always he always gave it his all um I you know one of the stories I'm, I shared after he he passed was that I um not really knowing who he was. I, I knew who he was at the time, but not that I was seeking out his cinema at the time, but mm. um, when uh, Henry and June came out, um, which was the first NC-17 film, um, which he he is in, um, I, was, I was really excited and titillated. I was like, I have to see this movie because it's this new rating. And like, what does it mean? And, you know, like Henry and June, sure, it was sexy and interesting and everything, but it was not a film for whatever 16 year old me I mean not even inappropriately I mean it was not the type of movie that I would have sought out yeah but I but I had to see it because it was the first NC-17 movie and lo and behold there's Fred Ward in it you know and it's just like he he would just pop up in everything and he he was always reliable he was always wonderful I think we can all bemoan the fact that he never got to play John Bernthal's father in something (laughs) um but uh you know, I, I think that the, uh, the world of cinema, both the studio and independent, you know, I think, I think that light shines a little bit dimmer now that he's gone. He, yeah. was, a, he was a wonderful dude. And I uh, very, very much regret that we never crossed paths. And I, uh, I certainly am, uh, I have been inspired to uh, catch some of his performances that I hadn't seen uh, previously. And I'm, yeah. I'm kind of making that, making that a point for the next month to, uh, to watch some Ward I never got around to.
0: Well, it's also interesting, I think, because going back to the whole Remo Williams thing, if it didn't bomb, because that was meant to be. That was specifically, I mean, it wasn't necessarily built as we're going to create this character. Well, not create this character. We're going to make the movie for the character and it's going to be Fred Ward. We're going to make a star out of him. But the whole point of that movie was it was meant to make a big franchise Mm -hmm. built into the world. And if it had succeeded, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened with Fred Ward, even though in a lot of ways I say, I just want things to go the way they did because- then I got to see him in all these things that really touched my heart in a lot of ways that may have not happened if Remo Williams became a big hit.
2: And had Re- Re- had Remo Williams become a big hit, you know, he he may have ventured down a similar road. I mean, I, I see a lot of similarities between Fred Ward and, for example, Bruce Campbell, um, mm-hmm. you know, who who was in some very successful films, was in a lot of bombs, but he He found his niche as a handsome character actor who occasionally landed a lead. but whenever he showed up for a scene or two in something, he stole the stole it out from all of the leads around him. And there's something to be said for that. I, I absolutely love character actors. I, I love yes. people who who steal a moment. I try to cast all my film's leads <laughs> with character actors because, I, I find them the most interesting. They're they're the most passionate and they're the most fun to look at. So,
0: so there's I honestly I mean, we talk we talk about this all the time. Character actors are technically the, the actual best actors. Not saying that they can't no, be course. the lead and the lead actors are not good or anything like that, but they they always have the best performances. But I will say though, on the other hand, about Rima Williams failing, at least it I mean, look, we still have to have a discussion, but at least it it prevented more discussion over the problematic casting of Joel Gray as a
2: Chinese uh, martial arts. Yes. Yes. Uh, but that's for another. That's we, for another. We discussion. will get will, to have me on for the problematic 80s movies episode and we'll, uh, we'll have a long conversation. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. And then I'm sure it, it, there, there's probably one more note that it kind of slips by at the end, but I'm surprised more people haven't talked about the fact that, yeah, uh, the virgin sacrifice is 16 and she's no longer a virgin because of this married detective.
2: Oh yeah, they absolutely make light of the fact. For listeners, referring to the fact that at the end of Cast a Deadly Spell, the fact that a virgin sacrifice is supposed to bring around the end of the world. And the characters actually joyously celebrate the fact that this married 30-something detective has deflowered this 16-year-old. And they're practically high-fiving over it at the end of the film. Like So this film, like countless other movies from, well basically all of cinema history um, definitely is is problematic it, it has its moments that deserve more of a discussion and that was actually on my list of things to uh, bring up about this film and uh, thank you very much for bringing it up because it, it had slipped my mind and it should not have because uh, yeah that's uh, that's that that's one to note
1: yeah well again, over, at Overdue Rentals, we love to bring up the love, but there's also a deeper discussion of things that, you know, if we're going to recommend these movies to audiences, we'd like to point out certain things that might crop up, but at the same mm-hmm. time, pay tribute to the fact that this film is still good, despite, you know, a couple things here and there.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's, it's a much larger discussion to have at another point, too, because everything has its levels. And there are certain films out there that were made at a certain time that have, problematic issues in them but it's not going to take me away from saying it's a good film a film i should think you should see and then other things have things that may have happened that are much more problematic that should be spoken about saying you shouldn't watch this you shouldn't listen to this whatever it may be and it's very much a, a weighted issue depending on the actual situations i would say for everything that that kind of gets put out there
2: hundred percent I um yeah there there are movies that I want to just immediately bring up but we we don't have the time let's just say the future future episode I'd be more than happy to deep dive into some of this with you because uh, I, I think it's very important to address but at the same time yes we we are ladies and gents out there we are we are referring to a cast a deadly spell a very well made very passionate very enjoyable film that, it is, it is worth noting does does feature this problematic issue. Yeah
1: Yeah, but at the same time, you know again, this is peak HBO original movie from when they were first being done and I remember it was just it was exciting to have every Saturday HBO was that place to go when you had cable because it's like okay, uh, new movies from Hollywood are premiering and every now and then when those aren't on, it's a new HBO movie. Yeah. that's
0: every time you would hear that coming on on a saturday yes. night man it was like a whole other level i don't they don't you don't have that feeling anymore
1: That's if you
2: as i was gonna say if, if anyone out there including you you guys here with me now um are are very nostalgic for hbo and that iconic intro um there's a phenomenal youtube video um from back then um someone found it and put it on youtube showing how they filmed that intro of oh. the float the floating hbo logo and the the city that it. The, the the sequence actually starts over a miniature city and then goes up into space and then floats into the hbo logo which then turns into a theater hallway and it shows how they actually filmed it it is phenomenal it is so interesting i think it's only about 10 minutes long yeah. again it's, it's a really wonderful little uh, little piece of i would say cinema history but a little really wonderful piece of uh, i guess i guess home video history um i'm gonna have to search so, i don't know but i'm gonna search this out so, so easy to find yeah. so much fun
1: if i'm not mistaken hbo themselves put it out officially oh and neat okay think but either that or it was either that or i'm confusing it with the video of how they put the full intro out in like full hd cleaned it up and it's on YouTube, but
0: Mm.
1: love that video. The the theme was always a favorite as a kid. And I have to mention a Dearly Departed podcast. I I have such great feelings for 80s all over. They had a killer remix of that theme and (laughs) it just nailed the intent of the show without it. Like even before you get into the actual meat of the show that just nailed it. You were home. Oh,
2: so good.
0: And with that, everybody now, please go Cross, cast deadly spell off your overdue rentals list. It is available to watch on HBO Max. Ted, thanks for joining us. Is there anything else out there you want people to know about? Keep a look on, eye out for where they can find you online.
2: No, you can find me online uh, on Twitter at Ted Gagan. That's T-E-D-G-E-O-G-H-E-G-A-N. It's a big mouthful, but you can try to find me there. Um, And if you like films set in the 1940s, I hope that you keep an eye out for my upcoming Shudder original, Brooklyn 45, which should be out later this year or early next. I put a lot of heart into it, and I hope that you will really enjoy it. It is a uh, very special movie that is very, very close to me.
0: Mike, where can people find us if they need to find us?
1: Oh, well, that is a good question because when we're not renewing our Shutter subscriptions that we have been so delinquent on, <laughs> that is me. I am guilty. Uh, or tracking down those hard to find variant copies of the Necronomicon made out of fruit leather skin. Uh, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, and on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And I guarantee you, you do not need a virgin sacrifice to find our back catalog but what you do need is where to find us. And as you can probably tell by now, you can find our show wherever you ethically source your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Audible, all those places that you use for your drive time enjoyment, we're probably there. But while we've got you on the internet, because who isn't on the internet these days, everybody uses it like magic. You can send us love letters, hexes, recommendations, uh, anything you really want to at rentals at gmail.com. Uh, but be careful what the hex is because you know you have to be responsible when it comes to these sorts of things. Last but not least, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on the various platforms that you can find us because we want to keep the rental counter open. And to bring guests like Ted Gagan in, into, into the deal, we need to know what pleases their audience and our audience to sort of make that nice little union.
0: Ted, hey, thank you again for joining us. Have a great
1: day. Well, yes.
2: Thank you so much, guys. Such a pleasure.
1: Blah bye. Matthew, blah bye. <laughs>